listening to the Business of Baking podcast with Michelle Green, the small business podcast that's all about successfully running your own sweet food company without losing your mind. If you've ever brought dessert to a party and been told you can make a fortune selling those, then you're in the right place. This is an honest, straight-talking podcast about the highs and lows of being in small business. Fueled by late nights, crazy client stories, and a permanent sugar high, we're going to listen, share, and learn our way to sweet business success. Here's your host, writer, speaker, recovering cake decorator, and incurable sweet tooth, Michelle Green. Back when I was a girl, just starting out my cake decorating journey, there was no YouTube, there was no Craftsy, there was pretty much nothing other than cake decorating books, and maybe a couple of those gills. It was a sad, sad and lonely place. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the changing face of the industry and what I've observed happening in this place over the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years that I've been a cake decorator, you know, back when I was like a newborn. I'm kidding. All right, let's listen up to today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Business of Baking podcast today. It's all about how the cake industry has changed. So I've been thinking a lot about how our industry has changed in the last probably 10 or 15 years, I'd say, more so in the last 10 years, maybe 8 to 10 years, because we've had immense growth thanks to things like television shows, the accessibility of learning channels like YouTube, like Craftsy, all this kind of stuff. And there's a very low barrier to entry to cake decorating. I mean, it's not hard to become a cake decorator these days. You know, it wasn't hard back then either, but it, it seems to be getting easier to skill up faster. And so I've kind of written down a couple of observations about the industry. And obviously, these are broad observations, right? I'm not like pointing fingers at anybody or whatever. Just kind of stuff I've noticed that has changed. Now, I started cake decorating when I was about 16. So prior to that, I'd played with like better cracker icing and whatever. But when I was 16, my older sister, who's she's seven years older than I am, my older sister asked me to create a cake for her wedding shower. And I did. And I, there's actually pictures of this on my blog. But it's it was I went out and I bought two heart shaped cake tins and I baked box mix in them and then I covered them with white Betty Crocker icing from the supermarket and I stacked the little heart on top of the big heart like no structure no whatever literally just like plonked it on there although I think I did know that you had to level it and then I decorated it with red gel icing from the supermarket like by the way those little squeezy tubes so annoying like they are not into like you squeeze them and then it either like out in in like a massive blob or it barely comes out but anyway so that's how I learned how to cake decorate and from then I was kind of like bitten by the bug, but I honestly, I didn't do much about it from the, from that age because there wasn't a way to do much about it. So I could have gone to a class at Michael's and learned the Wilton method and I could have checked out books. And so I am very bookish and nerdy. And so I did in fact check out a whole bunch of cake decorating books and I used to love to like look at the pictures, but I never really practiced very much. I could never get the hang of using a Ziploc bag as a piping bag. Like what is that about? Props to the people who can do that. I cannot do that. The Ziploc bag piping bag thing does not work for me. But anyway, so I used to look at all the pictures and I used to love them. And eventually when I was much, much older and living in Australia and a young mom, some friends got together and bought me a Wilton level one buttercream class. So I think it's fair to say that we've come a long way, baby, as an industry. And here's some of the stuff I've kind of learned, right? In no particular order, by the way, just stuff I've learned or noticed or paid attention to in the last eight or 10 years. So the first is that we have a lot more awareness 
of our worth as artists, but we also have a far less focus on the artistry. You know, look at me being all controversial. But the truth of the matter is that as the industry has grown, as the popularity of cake decorating has grown, the rise and rise of tools and molds and kind of like stuff you can use to make stuff, honestly, I think means that we have become as an industry far less creative. And now, obviously, this is a general observation, but I sort of think that we've come to rely on tools and molds and whatever so much that our industry has kind of become like a bit gimmicky. And it feels like you can look at thousands of cakes across thousands of, you know, websites or social media accounts or whatever, and there's not a whole lot to differentiate them. But on the flip side, the people who are the true artists of our industry, and when I refer to artists in our industry, I'm referring to people like Karen Portaleo, who honestly, she doesn't actually need it to be cake. She could be working in any medium and her work would be stunningly, stunningly beautiful and unique and different. So I do think that the people who are at their heart of hearts artists are actually pushing the boundaries of the definition of cake. They're pushing the boundaries of the definition of, of art. And I think they're pushing the boundaries of edible as well, right? Because yes, technically these things are edible, but how much do we all want to be eating isomalt? I don't know. It just tastes sweet, by the way, in case you're wondering, it's just sugar. But it's been really interesting to me to see that that divide is widening between the non-artists who are relying more and more on molds and cutters and tools and whatever, and the artists for whom the molds and the cutters and tools are nice, but they don't really need them to do what they do. It's just kind of like an added bonus for them. And it's interesting because as a business advisor and mentor, you would think that I would be like super pro molds and cutters and things because after all, it makes us more efficient, right? If we have to hand cut a thousand cookies versus stamp out a thousand and cookies. You know, I'm always from a from a business point of view going to pick the stamp out version. But I have to say as somebody who was educated as a cake decorator and a pastry chef in an era when those things were not available, I have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with them because I love the fact that they make us more efficient, they make our jobs a lot easier, they give us a cons- more consistent product. But I hate the fact that we've become so reliant on them that it's not unusual to see in a Facebook group or in a forum of some kind, people are like, I need this cutter by tomorrow. What am I going to do? And they're like panicking about the fact that they can't get that exact cutter or that exact mold. And so we've become more aware that we have more value as artists and those who, of us who are truly artists are more able to express that. But I think we have lost a little bit of the focus of, on, on artistry. I think we've lost a little bit of that along the way. And nowhere did this hit home for me more than a year before last, so two years ago now, my daughter asked for, so I, my kids are triplets, but I make them a cake every year for their birthday. And two years ago, oh, I should say, the, the actual rule in our house is that you get your own cake for your birthday, but it does not have to be made by me. So I'm really happy if my kids say, oh, I want a cake from so-and-so. I'm like, great, I'm happy to buy it. So it's it's not that, I should say. That. Anyway, she asked me for, she wanted a Ben and Jerry's ice cream cake for her birthday. And I'm like, okay, cool, right? And I, I went into our local Ben and Jerry's to order this cake for her. And the cake I ordered looked exactly like a Catherine Sabbath drip cake. So it was like a brightly colored cake with the drip down the edges and the upside down ice cream cone, you know, with all the spring goals and whatever. And I found myself really noticing because I happened to be in the market for cake, right? Really noticing 
how that if something which was previously a really creative, amazing design for our industry is now available at Ben and Jerry's, maybe it's not so special anymore. You know, maybe it's not so remarkable. And I started paying attention and I noticed that so many of the local bakeries around me were offering these things. They were offering all these drip cakes and, and they are beautiful and delicious and amazing but they'd hit the mainstream for sure. And a couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine sent me a picture of a unicorn cake, which are really popular at the moment, a unicorn cake available in a box at a British supermarket, a very middle of the road, I think it was Asda, very middle of the road British supermarket. And it's just kind of made me a bit sad that like the artistry of what we do has become almost so basic or so easy to replicate or so pedestrian or so not artistic that it's very easily replicatable in the mass market. And so I think we've become more aware of the fact that we should get paid for our special skills, but we are not relying on our special skills as much as we used to. And I think that that's kind of, yeah, kind of makes me a little sad. You know, I kind of like the fact that we, in a way, are magicians and not everybody can do what we do. And yeah, the barrier to entry is lower. So more people can learn what we do, but there's still that kind of X factor about cake decorators that I wish was a little bit more X factory. I wish it was a little bit more magic and a little bit less everybody can see behind the curtain, you know? So one of the other things I've noticed or observed about our industry is that the people who are getting into it are getting older. So they have older kids. Maybe it's a second career for them. Maybe it's something that they do in addition to another career, you know, a couple of, or even as, even as a retirement career, I've met a lot of people in the last two years or so who cake decorating or owning a sweets business, cookies, cupcakes, whatever, is kind of their like retirement job. I've had a lot of people like that. Used to be, you know, even as little as three or four years ago when I was teaching, almost everybody I was teaching was fairly young. It was, it was generally speaking, and again, broad generalization here, but generally speaking, it was young moms with young kids who got into it because they made usually their first kids first birthday cake because, you know, their mom did it for them and it's kind of like a bit of a rite of passage, you know, so they made their first kid's first birthday cake and that's what brought them into the industry. And that was a really common thing, right? They'd make it for their first kid's first birthday and then all their friends would be like, oh my God, that's amazing. You should so sell those. Or they fell in love with this making things by hand and and just the experience of it. And then they, they started going into it. And these days I meet people whose children are a lot older who or who are themselves a lot older. And it's just the demographic is shifting. It's shifting a little bit. I guess I guess we call this to the right. It's shifting a little bit. And it's interesting to me that this is happening. And it's also kind of beautiful to me that this is happening because it means that I used to get this excuse a lot of like, I'm too old to do that. This is like people in their forties, like I'm too old to do this. You know, I'm I'm not I'm not young enough. I'm not I can't physically do it. I this, that, and the other. And the truth of the matter is, I think it, that's shifting a lot. And we're starting to see a much older demographic get into it. And I love that because I think they're no longer having these excuses of I'm too old, I'm too crotchety, I'm too, my back hurts, whatever. And I think that's kind of, that's kind of really beautiful. So another thing I've noticed in the last couple of years is that the crowd who I like to refer to as Facebook famous, and that sounds a little bit derogatory or a little bit condescending, and I don't mean it to, so so please know that's not my intention. But I think for a, a couple of years here, probably starting about five years ago now and into the present day, there's this crowd of people who became Facebook famous or social media famous. They didn't necessarily run a business, and that's okay. Nobody needs them to, right? Uh, or nobody requires that. They became famous on social media. So they were early adopters. They were sharing photos on 
Instagram before Instagram was a thing. They were growing their Facebook audiences. They were sharing in tons of groups. They were befriending lots of people in the industry. And they created these huge, beautiful followers or followings is more accurate, really, of people on social media. And so they became kind of like Facebook famous, you know, some of them in the, in the millions of, of followers or whatever. And it's, it's kind of a beautiful and amazing thing that we were looking to these people as shining lights in our industry. Like these are the people who are not only really popular, but have the skills to back it up and are sharing their knowledge. And that was a really big part of their, of, of that culture that they bred was the sharing culture. And I think we actually have a lot to be thankful for in that. It's quite beautiful that those, that group of people started this like share days and this like sharing their own techniques and, you know, posting videos of what they'd, they'd made and they created this beautiful community. But I've noticed that in the last couple of years, a lot of people in that Facebook famous generation are now looking to monetize their fame. So what they've realized is that they spent all this time and effort growing those numbers and growing those numbers and growing those numbers and growing those vanity metrics. But it's not doing much for them. So they kind of learned that they have to focus less, I'd say, on the numbers for number sakes, right? So a lot of them are like branching out. A lot of them are, you know, starting schools or starting YouTube channels or selling other products or becoming affiliates for things. They've sort of realized, some of them, oh, by the way, are also returning to old careers. I've noticed that a lot in the last year or so as well, that a lot of these people who grew up in that kind of Facebook generation or that, that groundswell are now returning to their old careers in in possibly entirely other industries as well. And it's really, really fascinating to me because I think they've suddenly realized, or, or they've, maybe not suddenly, <laughs> maybe it's been a gradual thing. They've realized over the course of time that they have no choice but to monetize these, these efforts because, you know, that popularity and that attention and that fame is wonderful, but it also requires a fairly high level of effort, a fairly high level of engagement. You know, you've got to keep posting. You've got to continue to put stuff on. You've got to continue to be out there talking to people and responding to questions and all that kind of stuff. You can't just jump online, be like, here's all my stuff and then disappear for a month. It just doesn't work that way. So I've noticed that a lot of these people who got great big followers on social media are really now going back to figuring out, well, this is great, but all this effort is not netting me much. What can I do for that? So that's been really interesting for me to watch as well. Also, I have to say as a business mentor, a couple of years ago, the questions people asked me all the time were centered around how do I get more followers? How do I get more likers? How do I get more people to pay attention to my social media accounts? And I still get those questions, but very rarely. These days, it's how do I make more money? How do I monetize my followers? How do I you know, get the people who follow me to jump onto my mailing list? So it's been a really interesting shift for me and I think quite a positive one as well. For me, it really goes back to that whole valuing our worth as artists. It's not just about the numbers anymore. It's about the numbers and being able to feed our family. So that makes me really happy too. And I would say another thing I've observed is that live teaching has come back. So I think for a little while there, teaching in person, I wouldn't say died because I don't think it, it's ever going to die, but I think it, it slowed down significantly. And I think it slowed down for a couple of reasons. I think it slowed down a little bit because of the rise and rise and rise of video learning. I mean, that's just been an explosive thing in our industry where, you know, you used to only be able to learn from going to live classes or books. And then one video came aboard, on board, it just created this 
huge opening for people in particularly in like remote places or people who didn't have the financial means or the time means to get to go to a live class. It really exploded their world in the most wonderful of ways. And also teachers became much more savvy, right? Used to be teachers taught in their local area. And these days there are teachers whose whole career is spent flying around the world with a global presence and teaching all over the world, you know, distance is no longer a barrier to live teaching. We can, most of us can get on a plane and be somewhere within an hour or a day or whatever it is. And so live teaching, I think died a little bit one because there was just so much availability of video learning that it kind of put the live teachers out a little bit. And secondly, too many teachers were live teaching. So there were so many people on that teaching circuit, particularly in the internet, national circuit that consumers or students needed to get a lot more picky about which classes they took from whom and when. International teaching, being a student of an international teacher is a little bit more expensive than your local, you know, Wilton class or whatever. And so if you're going to spend three, four, five, six, seven, eight hundred dollars on a class, you're probably going to be a little bit pickier about which one you do. And once you've done one or two a year, you can't necessarily go to more than that, right? That, that's, that's your limited time spent as well. So I think live teaching really slowed down significantly, but I would say that in the last six months in particular, six to nine months maybe, it's come back with a vengeance, which I personally am super thrilled about because personally, I think there's no substitute for hands-on learning. And I myself, I'm a really bad video watcher. Oh my goodness. As a Craftsy instructor myself, I have a lot of access to Craftsy classes. And so I get really excited. I'm like, oh my God, I am totally going to learn how to like crochet. And I download this class and I like go and buy all the stuff and I like sit through the first lesson dutifully and then I just lose the will to live not because the class isn't quality it's great quality but because my attention span is that of a flea and I just kind of like start getting distracted by other stuff like oh my phone pinged oh my kids want me to hang out with them oh I have some other thing to do oh I'm a bit hungry oh I'm a bit thirsty oh I can't figure out this stitch and there's no one to like physically guide my hands and so I get frustrated and I'm trying to compare what I do to what they do I'm like it's not looking the same and I just forget it the number of video classes on many platforms that I've watched and just gone I can't even do this like it's just all too hard I need to do it in person and for me there's something so beautiful also about taking the time out of your life to go into a classroom and be a student for a day. I just find that it's like a magical bubble in which you live and you can do no wrong. I just, I love actual live teaching. And so I'm really happy to say that that trend of live classes is coming back and I hope it continues. I really hope it continues and there's a bit of a groundswell. So please, if you're a student out there listening to this, here's the best way you can help make that happen. If you see that a teacher in your area or a teacher is coming to your area and you want to do the, that class, please don't wait till the last minute. That's the other trend about teaching I've seen is that students wait until literally the very last freaking second to sign up for stuff. And that means that a whole bunch of teachers are canceling classes left, right and center because you can't wait until the last possible second. I mean, we also have families and planes to catch and places, you know, people to see, places to go. And if students are waiting until the last minute, you know, sometimes you have to make the hard decision to cancel because, you know, 48 hours before the class, if there's not enough people in there to make it viable, you've got to make that hard decision. And every live teacher will tell you the heartbreak of canceling a class and then getting an email or two or five or 10 from students saying, oh, I was going to sign up. I was going to sign up. I was really going to sign up. 
why is it canceled? So do myself and other live teachers a favor. And if you see a live class coming and you really want to go to it, sign up. And if you can't afford for it, ask for a payment plan. Most of us are pretty happy to afford, to uh, allow that to happen. So if we're going to get live teaching back, we need to support live teachers. So that, yeah, that's my little soapbox moment for today's podcast. The other thing I've noticed is that that everybody will have noticed is that buttercream came back, but that's not a big surprise, is it? That buttercream came back. Buttercream is the bomb. I love buttercream. But trends cycle. So really interesting to me that we all joke, we're like, oh, buttercream's really hot right now. Buttercream was really hot like 20 years ago. It just came back. And, you know, that's the thing that cake is no different in fashion cycles to actual fashion and clothing, right? Why are we all wearing high-waisted jeans again? Didn't we get rid of those in like 1985? Because trends come back again things cycle back again, right? And one of the things I've noticed about the cycling of trends that I'm really happy about is that artistry in other industries is really starting to affect our industry. So in the last couple of years, as an example, handwritten or lettering has become a really big design trend. And it's therefore become a really big design trend in cake too, hand lettering, hand painting, um, you know, the, the blackboard style of things. I think it's actually really, really beautiful to see how trends in other industries get pushed into trends in the food industry because we're such a visual medium, right? And so it's beautiful to see that like all these gorgeous hand lettering signs and beautiful quotes that are framed and whatever, I'm starting to see that beautiful thing happen in Cake 2. And it's really nice. I actually really love it when there's artistic crossover in terms of design elements and stuff and color elements and whatever, you know, rose gold became such a big deal in, in, in stationery and in clothing and in jewelry and all this kind of stuff. And then it kind of appeared in the cake world as well. So I really love that crossover. And that's not a new thing. That's an old thing, but I still think it's beautiful to notice. And the last thing I've really noticed in the last year or so is that as much as artists are pushing the boundary of what they can do in cake, artistry is now applying to things which are still edible, but non-cake. And in the last you know, a couple of years, I've seen the most incredibly beautiful cookies in particular. Those things don't look like cookies anymore, man. Like sometimes you got to hunt to find where's the cookie under this thing, right? You know, pretzel rods have become, you know, they used to be just pretzels dipped in chocolate with a bit, a little bit of caramel. And now they're turning into these beautiful works of art. You know, people are taking the, the very humble Rice Krispie Treat bar and now putting it on a stick and dipping it in chocolate and, you know, swirling it with glitter or whatever and putting, you know, molded hearts on it and whatever you know covered oreo used to just be a round thing it's not a round thing anymore now it's this round thing with these you know hand molded roses and whatever and it's incredible to me to see that not only are we pushing the boundaries of a big product like a cake but we're pushing the boundaries and the artistry on the little stuff i absolutely love this i love seeing a beautiful dessert table where the cake is amazing but the you know the oreos are also beautiful or the the cookies are beautiful the pretzel rods are beautiful or the you know the little parfaits or whatever people are doing i love that we are adding artistry in to what are otherwise pretty mundane simple small products and so i hope that trend doesn't go away either because i think it's really beautiful to see things to a theme you know where previously i think kind of cookies and all this kind of stuff were like you know small and i mean still beautiful but we didn't necessarily decorate them and now i think we're really making the effort to decorate them and make them more an integrated part of the artistry of 
what we do in a dessert table, I think it's really, really beautiful. I will say that my business heart dies just like the tiniest bit every time I see like a Rice Krispie treat with like, you know, 16 little teeny tiny like roses on it or whatever, because I'm like, no, some poor person spent so much time doing that and there's no money in that. But from an artistic foodie point of view, I think that it's really, really, really beautiful. So, you know, just keep pushing the boundaries, guys. Like, it's really amazing to see what's out there. And if I had to predict kind of what was going to happen from here on in, right? I should like re-listen to this podcast in like a year and see if I was right or whatever. But if I had to predict some of the things that I think are coming, I think the first thing is that we are going to not step away from social media, but understand better that we need a more local focus. I think we're going to see particularly food companies still using their social media to great to great success. But I think that we are going to a little bit like the Facebook famous crowd become more and more and more aware of the fact that if we can't make a living out of that 10,000 posting a day, there's probably no no great point to posting 10,000 times a day. So I think there's going to be a real local focus. And I think that that local marketing focus and that local business focus is also going to apply to things like ingredients. I think we're going to see a lot more cake companies really proud of the fact that they use local eggs or local honey or they use you know some sort of local flavor or some sort of you know traditional flavor profile they see in their local area or culturally so i think local is probably the next the next thing i think that some of these gimmicky tools are going to start falling away i think that molds and cutters and whatever are great but i think really useful tools rather than just gimmicky tools are going to start to become you know the wave of the future one of the really cool things i've seen recently is a lot of companies doing 3d printing for cookie cutters and I think that that's brilliant, right? It's relatively fast technology to create this cutter that you're going to use, but we're not needing, right? The, the interesting part of that is the 3D printing, not necessarily the cutter part, but the fact that we can use something like a 3D printer to create a super useful tool, as opposed to creating these super complicated, super gimmicky tools that like aren't all that useful, right? I mean, they're useful for one specific order and then like never useful again. So I think we're going to see a return to really useful tools or adaptable tools, things that you can use in more than one way than we will these kind of gimmicky one-off buy at once kind of things. So that's kind of exciting. And from a design point of view, one of the trends I'm loving seeing at the moment is kind of mixed media. So I'm loving seeing these cakes that use cookies on them to decorate or I love seeing cakes that use cake pops on them to decorate. I actually love seeing one product which uses other product to make it look more amazing. I saw a really cool space cake recently, which had planets all around the outside and the planets were all made of cake pops. And I've seen cakes where like it's got a happy birthday plaque or like a number one plaque on the top and that's actually a cookie. So I'm really loving seeing other forms of food kind of all come on the same thing. I've seen some super, super cute stuff lately where people are using other types of things to decorate onto a single thing. Like as an example, you know, you might see like a little wedding cake cookie that's on top of a wedding cake or whatever. This, this kind of like gorgeous stuff. I love seeing when people use more than one type of dessert to create an overall picture of something. I think that's super gorgeous. So I've spent, you know, the last however many years in this industry, absolutely loving so much of the incredible stuff we do. But it's been interesting to see how it's changed and how different people are getting into it now and uh, the way we learn is different and what we want to learn is different and you know I am a little bit old school and that I prefer doing things the old-fashioned way than relying on endless molds and cutters but I do see a place for those as well so I'm kind of on the fence on that one really 
which should come as no surprise. I guess in some ways it's the progress the industry has made has been amazing. And in other ways, I wonder if it's not just sending us backwards a little bit. But either way, I'm so proud to be a part of this industry and get to see all the beautiful and amazing things that my colleagues out there produce. And may, you know, may that be the lesson to you that the trend that will never change about either our industry or any other is that we are all still learning. We're still learning. We're still growing. We're still innovating. And in my opinion, that's exactly how it should be. for listening to the Business of Baking podcast. You can find show notes, links, and other fun stuff for this and previous episodes at thebizofbaking.com. Until next time, may your oven stay evenly hot, your ganache never split, and may you always be in the business of being awesome.